today. Hi, everybody. My name is Rafe Chenry. Nice to see you. I'm the pastor here at Park South Loop. It's always good to get to open up God's Word. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 1. House Bibles, that is page 939. <clears throat> if you're using your app, I think it's the sixth book in the New Testament. About, yeah, sixth? Okay. Uh, sixth book in the New Testament. And before we dig in, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have not left us uh, totally in the dark, trying to figure out life all on our own. Thank you that you've spoken and that your words are good, that they give life, that we can understand you. God, thank you for the Holy Spirit that leads us in that understanding. God, I pray right now over this entire room, I pray for each of us, God, that, that we would be a changed people, that we would be the kind of people that come into a place like this, have a, a tremendous encounter with the living God, the God who's able to change us, that we would have an encounter with him, and then by the power of your spirit working through a community like this, would leave here changed, more like Jesus, spreading your kingdom with greater clarity and power. God, allow that to happen. God forbid we leave here unchanged. And so we submit things to you right now. Would you do your great work in Jesus' precious name? Amen. I have a friend. His name's James. And uh, I got to know James a number of years ago. And James tells me the story of how he became a Christian. He grew up in a highly academic family. Uh, I didn't grow up in a family like that. His parents were both kind of like academic elites. And uh, they used to sit around their dinner table, even as a, as a little kid, they'd sit around their dinner table debating philosophers like John Locke and Hume and like all those guys, and they just had those types of conversation. He was a brilliant mind. And he went to college, and that was the kind of life he liked to live. He liked to debate. He liked to evidence his way through life. And he was a self-proclaimed atheist. And one day, him and his roommate are sitting in their dorm, or I guess in their apartment or wherever it was, and uh, a Jehovah's Witness knocks on the door. And so here's two brilliant men who are in the midst of their studies, open the door to the Jehovah's Witness, and they bring him in. And the Jehovah's Witness starts to share about his faith with them, and, and they start to discuss back, and then James just immediately kind of ended the conversation, and he, he, he asked the Jehovah's Witness to leave, and he turned to his roommate, he said, you know, I have no knowledge in this field whatsoever, I've used my academia to look into every other thing. Like, I, I can talk knowledgeably about a whole lot of stuff, but when it comes to basic things about God, I've never even looked into it. Like, I, I couldn't even hold a realistic, rational conversation with somebody. So it sent him on a journey. He said, I don't ever want that mistake to happen again, because he's a good academic mind. He, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go study. I'm going to spend a number of months. In fact, I'll spend a year. I'm going to spend a whole year looking into the various religions and trying to understand the evidence for the different religions, trying to approach them from a rational mind. And so he went and he studied Islam. He studied Hinduism. He studied Buddhism. He likes to say he left Christianity for the end because he was a good academic. He knew that he brought into his thinking a whole lot of biases. Just from growing up in a post-Christian environment like America, where there's echoes and reverberations of Christian thinking everywhere you go. He said, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't biasing my judgment of other religions that I was unfamiliar with, and so I could approach them real academically. So I left Christianity for the very end. So he gets through most of the year, and then with the last few months, he says, okay, it's time to study Christianity. And he was convinced going into this that Christianity was wrong. He recognizes his bias now. But he then goes in, and he begins the process of studying the evidence for Christianity. And after about two, three months, 
He tells me the story that he was sitting in the bottom of a dark library with C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. It's a great book that he wrote, open before him. He'd studied for a number of months at this point, and he said, he puts his hands in his head like this, and I'll give you the G-rated version. He said, oh no, it's true. You can imagine, he used some other language. He said, you know what? He goes, at that point, I realized that there was enough evidence to convince me that the story of Christianity was true. He goes, but I wasn't ready to believe yet because I knew if I chose to actually believe it, something about my life was going to have to change. So he said, I went out and I partied for two weeks. He goes, and then I couldn't do it anymore. I knew it was true. It was just haunting me and I decided to trust in Christ. I love stories like that. Christianity is a faith at its core. Christianity is faith. And and faith is described in the Bible as believing in the unseen. And faith requires that you believe in something that there is unseen. And so there is no proof that I can necessarily offer you today. There's no mathematical equation that I can just quickly put the puzzle pieces together. Boom, done deal. You can walk out of here and know, yes, there is a God. Rather, Christianity is a faith. But I want you to know something about the Christian faith. Christian faith is different than other faith systems. Not every faith system would actually, uh, would actually apply what I'm about to tell you. Christianity is not a faith that requires you to go against where the evidence leads you. In fact, Christianity would call that foolishness. Faith is not believing despite where the evidence points you to. That's foolishness. Faith is believing in line with where the evidence points you and yet further than where the evidence is able to take you. There is evidence all around us that is pointing somewhere. Christianity says if you fairly evaluate the evidence, the Christian narrative is not only beautiful but true. It's in line with where the evidence is and yet it's not just enough to know the facts. God desires a relationship with you. And so he's going to ask you to have faith. Now in this room today, There are people from all different faith backgrounds and places in their journey. Uh, There are some of you that are in this room today that are very skeptical. Perhaps you're like my friend James was when he began his journey. And you're in here and you're asking some of those questions. Is there any validity to this? I mean, is the Christian faith just a fairy tale that i got to believe in? Or is there some substance to this that can correspond and correlate with the world as I know it in the 21st century? Some of you in here have been Christians for many, many years. You're deeply a part of the church. But I'm willing to bet one of the things that happens in a room like this is that you get into a room like this and oftentimes there's a lot of Christians in it because we're a church. I'm glad there's a lot of Christians in a church, right? But you get into a room like this and and you can quickly think, man, I got to be the only person with questions, right? I, I bet you everyone around me has all the hard questions answered, locked solid in some like safe somewhere and they never ask these questions, And so then it becomes a very unsafe place to actually ask the legitimate questions that we have. Like, is there a God? How do we correlate this with science? All the questions we're asking. So what I want you to know is this. In this church, every question's okay. Every question's okay. God is not desiring you to tiptoe around your faith, afraid that you're going to knock it over any second. God invites you into a living relationship where we can observe the world around us and be strengthened in our convictions around our faith. Everybody has faith. The atheist and the Christian alike have faith. The question is, where does the evidence point us to? Now, as I dig into this question and answering this today, I want to put a couple disclaimers out there. One, I know some of you believe this, but I am not a great astrophysicist scientist with many PhDs to my name. 
okay? It's just not who I am. I don't have that. However, however, it's not just the people with many PhDs who are able to use their minds and think reasonably. I'm going to be taking us into some spaces of science today that men who have written wonderful books and have written extraordinarily on fields that I have no PhDs in, that I can communicate to you some of their findings. So I want you to know that I'm going to be stepping into some fields where I'm not an expert at. Um, and I want you to know that as we do that, you have security to investigate this as, on your own as well. After you leave this place today, I invite you, everything I share with you, I'm going to invite you to go study and show yourself approved, as Scripture says. Now, is there a God? We're going to be in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. So let's dig in. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We're going to come back to that phrase in a little bit. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Let's pause there. Now, I've chosen this passage today in Scripture because I think it serves us well as we dig into this question of, is there a God? And before I get into any arguments, I want to understand what the text is saying. The text Paul is writing here is saying that what we are able to do, God has constructed the universe so that when we look out over this world that we live in, when we open our eyes and actually observe the things of the world, all of us are without excuse for recognizing there's a God behind this. So none of us are going to get up to heaven, right, to heaven's doors, and going to be like, well, you didn't give me enough clues, basically. God's saying, no, I put everything right in front of you. It's all there. As Christians, in the world of, like, theology and big words, uh, the word we use for this is natural revelation. God has revealed through nature, through the things of this world, a lot about himself, Many of the details, such as Christ and all those things, we need to have special revelation, God's word to know. But in terms of whether there's a God or not, man, he's put that right in front of us. We just got to open our eyes, says Paul. Paul is basically saying this. All you've got to do is begin to observe the universe around you. If you use your mind, your eyes, and your rational thinking that God's given you, then you, are, you will be without excuse to know that there is a God over this universe. Now, what this fundamentally means is that science is not opposed to Christianity. I want you to hear that. If you've never heard a pastor tell you that before, that's like ground zero for engaging in the 21st century, right? Science is not opposed to Christianity. What is science? Science is the field of observing the known universe. Paul says in Romans, when you observe the known universe, you will become and find evidences that point you towards God. So if scripture is true, I ought to be able to use science, dig into it, see all the science that's available, the observations that are in front of us, and be strengthened in my convictions around God. At least in, if Paul's writing truth here. What I like to say is that science is kind of like looking at the paintbrush of God. God has created all of these things. And then, and then when, we, when we look at science, we get into the nitty-gritty details of the order and the beauty and all the, the craftsmanship behind his creation of the universe and of you and me. We get detailed view into his creation, and he invites us into that. So what are the things verse 20 is describing? It says that we are without excuse for knowing two things. Number one, God's eternal power 
And number two, his divine nature. That's verse 20. We're without excuse for knowing his eternal power and divine nature. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's think about that for a second. Power. Something extraordinarily powerful had to be the cause of everything that we know. Clearly, it was a power that's beyond you or me or any machine we might ever invent. To spin the cosmos into creation, there must be an eternal power behind it. And secondly, it must be a divine nature. Ontologically speaking, the makeup of this person or this thing or whatever we want to call it must have a nature that is somehow divine, eternal, for him to spin such a beautiful creation into being. Now, is that true? Let's look at some of the fields of science and see what people are saying in these days. The first thing that, the first place I, I would go in this conversation is to the science of cosmology. Cosmology. Cosmology is the study of the cosmos. It's the, it's the study of existence in a way. All the things that we know that are there. And kind of within the field of cosmology, just one statement, just to kind of get us started. The reality that we're here. Now I know that's a biggie, right? But we are here. I, I, I have hands. I, got, I can crack my finger, my, my, my knuckles. I can have relationship with you. I can have love for my wife and for my children. I can be part of a community and society. If you just think about it for a second, we're here. That's amazing. Now, I know if you're a philosopher type, that there are some philosophers sitting somewhere in swively chairs in Switzerland, smoking pipes, debating whether or not we're really here. Okay? If you like reading philosophy, those conversations take place. But for the rest of us, let's start with a starting point that just assumes we're here, right? They're wrong, we're here, that's foolish. Sorry if you're one of those guys and you're on vacation here in Chicago, okay? We're here. We can all admit that there is a real life and real experience that we participate in. Now if we're here, the question has to be asked, how did we get here? And that's a question for cosmology. How did we get here. You know, the Christian story is really clear. It's got a very clear story of how we arrived here, and it's very compelling. It says that a God with an eternal power and divine nature spun the universe into motion. There was once a time when there was nothing. There was no time. There was no space. There was just a God and his beauty. And then he spoke the universe into being. And out of nothing, the term is ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created everything that is and put order and beauty and design into it. Now, that's always been the Christian story. Christians have always believed that because that's how God's revealed it to us. But in the world of science, that hasn't always been the case. For many, many years, for centuries even, the world of science thought that was a fairy tale. It was assumed in the scientific world that everybody knew the universe was just eternal. In fact, in the 20s, Einstein himself, one of the great physicists of all time, if not the greatest, right? One of the greatest scientific minds said the idea, the concept that the universe had a beginning is abominable, quote Einstein, right? And then in 1929, something radical happened. God allowed a scientist to peer into his paintbrush, and that scientist's name was Edwin Hubble. Edwin Hubble took his telescope and he began noticing something interesting about the light that was coming to him from the outer distances of the universe. He began noticing that the way that they were coming to him revealed evidence that the universe was expanding like a balloon. This was all new science at the time. But the problem with that is that the universe is expanding like a balloon. That means if you could go back in time, you get to this point where the universe had to have a beginning. 
that was a bombshell in the world of science. For Christians, they've been saying, we've been saying that for the whole time. <laughs> of course, that's the story. God started this whole thing. But for the world of science, it was a it was a bombshell. Einstein goes on record as saying this, the observed motion of the galaxies, and he disagreed. He refused to believe it until Hubble showed up at his doorstep and showed Einstein the evidence. And then Einstein goes on quote saying, the observed motion of the galaxies has smashed my old construction like a hammer blow. In a good, thick Einstein accent, he said that. And then he went on to say this, and it irritates me. The reason it irritated him was because he knew the direct theological implications of saying the universe had a beginning. It irritated him. And he carried that irritation with him throughout the remainder of his life. I recently read a book by a man named Alan Lightman. Alan Lightman's one of the better scientific thinkers of our day. He's one of the more popular scientific thinkers of our day, I should at least say. He's written a number of books. And, and in this book, the book is called Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. If that gives you a, an idea of the book. Here's an atheist materialist. He only believes in the material substance, things we can observably touch with our hands and our eyes. He doesn't believe in any type of God. But in this entire book, what I would summarize it as, he's, he's looking in the beauty and the transcendence of creation. He's seeing the, the sheer, what I would even call holiness of looking into the stars and realizing his place in all of it. But he doesn't have that religious language. He's just stuck as a man who can't believe beyond anything he can see looking at the stars saying, wow. And he, he comes at the end of his book after reviewing all these things. He's got this profound insight. He says, what caused the universe to come into being? Why is there something rather than Nothing. We don't know, and we will almost certainly never know. And so this most profound question, although in tightest embrace with the physical world, will likely remain in the domain of philosophy and religion. One of the greatest scientific minds of our day, refusing to believe what Romans 1 says is obvious, is plain sight, clearly perceivable. Romans 1 verse 20, it is right there in front of our eyes that when you believe, when you begin to see that we are here, we are without excuse. We had a beginning. William Lane Craig commenting on this. William Lane Craig is a great thinker, and he, he just puts some language to this that's helpful. He says this, It's the atheist who has to maintain by faith, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, that the universe did not have a beginning. Yes, there are scientists who are still trying to figure out a way to get around the fact that it had a beginning, but they're falling short in every one of their models a finite time ago, but is in some inexplicable way eternal after all. So the shoe's on the other foot. The Christian can stand confidently within biblical truth, knowing it's in line with mainstream astrophysics and cosmology. It's the atheist who feels very uncomfortable and marginalized today. That's how Einstein felt. It irritated him. But you know, it's not just the fact that we're here. That's amazing. And if that's all the evidence we had, that would be incredible. But something that's even more impressive is the order and the beauty behind the universe we live in. You may have never considered this before, but we live in a universe that is governed by law and logic and rationality. We believe, scientists believe by faith, that tomorrow is going to be just like it was today. That all the laws they discover today are going to apply tomorrow. That's a faith statement that scientists must adhere to. And they believe it to be true because it always has been that way. But it's interesting. If the universe just spun into motion, unguided, uncreated, if it was just spinning, there's nothing that says it has to be rational and logical. 
There's no rule out there that says mathematics has to apply in a universe that spins itself into motion out of nothing. We just so happen to live in a universe that is governed and balanced on a razor's edge to produce life here. If we were one little bit further from the sun, if there was just a little less chemical balance in the, in the solar system that we have, if our bodies were just composed a, a little bit way, if the sun was composed just a little differently, if we had one speck difference in terms of our, where we were placed in the position of the Milky Way galaxy, all of this is balanced on a razor's edge. The universe doesn't have to be that way. It could have been any way. Scientists recognize this. They, 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 scientists, when they wrestle through this, they are also in sheer awe of the fact that we live in a logical, coherent universe. It almost points them towards a designer. They, they, they get to the place where oftentimes they begin using design language without believing in a designer. One of the great scientists of the 20th century, Paul Dirac, who discovered a subatomic particle part particle called a positron says this it seems to me to be one of the fundamental features of nature that the fundamental physical laws are described in terms of mathematical theory of great beauty and power needing quite a high standard of mathematics for one to understand it you might wonder why is nature constructed along these lines one can only answer that our present knowledge seems to show that nature is so constructed we simply have to accept it one could perhaps describe the situation, and here he's being a bit tongue-in-cheek because he's an atheist, describe the situation by saying that God is a mathematician of a very high order. Here's one of the great scientific minds looking at it and saying, it doesn't make any sense. Why is the universe so logically ordered to create life? I don't know. We'll just have to leave it up to realizing that we'll never know. And yet the Christian looks back at Romans 1 and says, no, 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 we do know. It points us to something. God gave us order and logic so that we could exist because he's got a plan for our life. Where does the evidence point us? When it comes to this field of science, the Christian stands in very confident place, knowing that the evidence points us towards the reality that there is a God, a God who has a divine power and an eternal nature. Now, in verse 22 to verse 23, Paul takes this to another place. Let's pick up where Paul left off. He says, For although they knew God, and he's speaking about the people that had all the evidence around them. So they knew God in the sense that they, they could perceive that this God was there. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now just as a reminder, because I didn't say this when I started the sermon, but we are taking text and questions and the instructions are behind me. So if you have a good question, shoot it that way and I'll try to respond after the message. Paul says in this little short uh, clip right here from Romans, he says that, Something happened. Their minds were darkened. Though they could clearly perceive that there is a God, though all the evidence supports this, something happened. And rather than worshiping God as God, they began to worship the created things as God. And he says that this is foolish. They, be, they began in verse 22, he says, to resemble things that were made in the image of mortal men. Now this is interesting. 
This is talking back 2,000 years ago when in that day what they were doing is they were making statues and idols that they pretended that these things had created the universe. These things had made, made the power that we see and the relationships we see. And Paul says, look, that's just foolishness. But here we are 2,000 years later literally assigning godship to the created things still. Now I want you to think for just a second. Is there anything in our world, in our society, that we, that we ascribe godship to? Basically, do we ascribe anything to have the power to, to define morality, the power to define why we're here and what our purpose is, the power to decide judgment on who gets to live and who doesn't get to live? Yes. In our 21st century, we don't just make God in images of mortal men. We have actually made man God. That's the, the great sin of our modern era, is that we have a, 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 we've attributed Godship to the human people, to ourselves. And we live lives, if every one of us in this room is really honest with ourselves, we live lives where we have the final judgment, where, where we get to determine the kind of life we want to live, the kind of morals we want to ascribe to, how we're going to live in society, what parts of God's word we're going to listen to and what parts we're not going to. And once we do that, we make ourselves God. And Paul says, not only is that foolish, but it's dangerous as well. Now, this is foolish and dangerous. Now, why is that the case? We live in a society in which the decisions we make and how we think about the world has real-world implications. So it's not just that we're sitting in a room like this debating logic and law and morals, right? We can do that all we want. But then once we leave this room... We are in real relationships with people and the morals we choose to live by have real world consequences. If we make ourself God, that has implications on how you treat one another. And so we're impacting the world through the things we believe. Let me give you a clear example. Hopefully this helps think through this. We believe in this room, most people would say, humans have dignity. Humans have value. Every person has value. Doesn't matter your creed, your color, your background, your country. Doesn't matter. You have value as a person. You do. And most people in today's day and age, most people who are not just mean-spirited people would say, yes, I believe that to be a true statement. There's a brilliant philosopher named Peter Singer. I read a book of his recently called In Praise of Doubt. Uh, and then I, I've been listening to a number of things he's put out recently. Peter Singer is a sociologist, and just to kind of give you an idea of the, the weight this guy has, not physical weight, like the oomph he has in society, he holds the chair of bioethics at Princeton. So in terms of like culture movers and shakers, this guy's got some power to his name, right? Peter Singer. If you listen to Peter Singer talk, he comes off as extraordinarily wonderful man. He's the guy, you listen to him on a podcast, you know, man, I want to have Peter Singer over for dinner at my house. Great guy. Sounds great. Sounds like a nice, warm-hearted man. And he has a very brilliant mind. Peter Singer has an interesting philosophy. He's coming from a position of understanding that there is no God. And so now he's got to wrestle through some things. Well, if we're just here on accident, that, then what really is a human? How do you define what a human is, says Peter Singer? And he begins to wrestle through it. He says, you know, what is human is what is rational. These are characteristics a human has to have. He's got to be rational, autonomous, and self-conscious. He says, well, so if there are people who don't necessarily live up to the high standard of that, perhaps they really fail in one of those areas. Well, they, Peter Singer would say there's a lack of humanness. Peter actually goes on to say that there are a number of animals in the animal kingdom that have uh, more humanity than, than some people. He goes so far as to say this. He says, look, if there were 
uh, infants that were in the womb that knew that they were lacking these severe and extreme situations, says Peter Singer, where there is just such an abundant lack of rationality and autonomousness and consciousness that it's perfectly justified to abort that child. He goes even further. He says, even after birth, once the child has been born, in situations where that human level is not quite there, where it's much, it's extreme situation, it's totally justifiable to terminate that life. Now, something inside of you, I'm willing to bet if you're in this room right now, something inside of you says, you are wrong, Peter Singer. Every human life has value. Something inside of you looks back on the history of our country and knows the rough history we've had with that kind of language, don't you? That some people are less human than other people. We're about to celebrate Martin Luther King Day. And Martin Luther King, one of the great, if not the greatest American that ever was born, right? Here he comes, and what is he saying? All men are created equal. Where did he get that from? He got that from the Word of God. That's where that was originated from. And in the history of our country, the reason slavery was justified was for this language, that some people, because of certain qualities about them, are less human than other people. That was the language. The Nazis used the exact same justification. The reason the Nazis attempted to do what they did and did what they did is because they justified it by saying Jewish people are less than human. And here comes Peter Singer. Charming as can be. Some people are less than human. And now we have real world justification to do with those people as we choose to do. Now I'm willing to bet that something in you just reels at that. This is, it can't be. No, that is not right. Every human being has dignity, has value, has worth. But I want you to know if you believe that, that comes out of here. You do not get that from an atheistic worldview. You can't arrive there. That's why Peter Singer is leading the charge. That's why he's out ahead. You can't get that from anywhere else but here. And the reason you get it from here is because this book says the reason that every human being has dignity and value and that no one can choose and begin to play God of who gets to live and who doesn't get to live and who is worthy of a good life and who's not worthy of a good life, no one can play that. You cannot become God. The second you become God, you are way out of line. No one gets that right because God has ascribed dignity and human value to every person, no matter your color, no matter your country, no matter your intellectual capacity, every person has value. And so we can rightly stand to Peter Singer and say, Peter Singer, you might be as charming as can be, but you are wrong and that's dangerous. And Romans 1 says, not only is it dangerous, but it is foolish. See, one of the greatest evidence for God that I have ever come across is that something inside of each of you in this room is mad right now at Peter Singer. And the fact that you're angry shows you that you got the image of God inside of you. You got the image of God inside of you. The reality that we live in a moral universe shows you, is evidence in itself that you desire justice, that you desire morality. That says you're made in some kind of image that says that justice and morality are good things. And the only way to get there is by starting from a place of a just God. You know, when you look at Jesus, who did he spend all of his time with? All of it. He was always with the people the most of society would say are less than human in some way. He spent his time with the schizophrenic, with the demon-possessed. 
He spent his time with people who were outcast from society and marginalized, who were, who were struggling through life. He, he, was, he was constantly surrounding himself by people that others were casting to the side. Jesus Christ shows up, God in the flesh, literally God in the flesh, the one who is the one who created all of this cosmos and implanted that morality in you, shows up in the flesh and lives a life of demonstrating it for us. You just got to read Jesus' life or you got to look at a Christian's life who's really following Jesus because what a Christian's life who's really following Jesus begins to look like is they begin to look a lot like Jesus. They begin to go and hang out with all the same people Jesus was hanging out with. Why? Because you begin to acquire the heart of Christ. And Christ didn't just leave us in this place working on our own trying to figure this out, but he did something about it. Go back to this very first verse with me. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here's the reality. For each of us in this room today, we are without excuse. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what your faith is as you come in this room. But God has, has not, you know, made faith this thing that we're like searching for buried treasure, wondering if we're ever going to find it. Everything we need that God needs for us to have faith is right in front of our eyes. And each of us are without excuse. God says for those that choose to make themselves God, to not submit to God's authority, there is a wrath that is stored up for them because they don't realize it, but they are bringing all of the brokenness into their own life and into society and other people's lives around them. And because God is just, he has wrath and anger towards that kind of life. But the good news is that Jesus Christ didn't just leave us under the wrath of God. God in the flesh shows up and says, I see that you make yourself, God. I see that you have a hard time submitting to you. And yet, I love you and I'm going to die on the cross for you. I'm going to shed my life. I'm going to shed my blood that you can have life to the full so that I can begin restoring godliness into your life. See, if you want that beauty, if you want to begin to understand the things that God's called you to and the, the life that he's invited you into, you got to start by going through Jesus. Only he can offer it to you. Any other route and you're just searching in the wind, wondering if you're ever to find an anchor for life. Jesus, all the while hanging on a cross, say, come to me. He's saying, come to me. I give you life to the full. I don't know where you stand today. Is there a God? I know this. I've made my choice. I've made my decision. I look at the evidence that's around me and over the last 15 years of my life as living as a follower of Christ, my faith has been strengthened the more I look into these things. I continue to be in awe of the God who has placed so much evidence before us. It all lines up. Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And I know this, the little life I've lived, in the hardships I've been through, and I'm certain that you have been through many more than me, but in what I've been through, the God that I've placed my faith in has been the support the anchor, and the beauty that has held it all together. Without him, I don't know where I'd be. I wouldn't be here. I know that. I was headed on a way different path than this. And then God got a hold of me. And he can get a hold of you too. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you that you haven't left us scratching in the wind, wondering if you're there, but you've given us evidence upon evidence upon evidence. And I've only scratched the surface today. Is there a God? Yes, you are good. You have given us life. God, I pray right now over this room that as we wrestle through these things that none of us would think that these things are too heady for us, that these things are too far beyond our grasp or understanding. God, no, you've given us minds to think and to reason and to understand and to see you. Jesus, thank you for life to the full. Thank you that you haven't left us on our own. We praise you in Jesus' holy and perfect name. Amen.